0: Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Praise God, I am excited today. We are kicking off a brand new series to start off the year called Dear Church. We are diving into seven letters written to seven different churches in the book of Revelation. And uh, what's so cool is each of these is a personal message from Jesus Christ to these congregations. And he's got some incredibly fascinating things to say to these churches. Uh, Sometimes it's good things. Sometimes he congratulates them on their good points. And some of what he says is desperately honest and uh, tough to hear. (laughs) And my prayer is that all of it is going to be incredibly valuable to us uh, Generations Church and accomplishing the mission that he has given us here in 2018, 2,000 years later, uh, becoming more and more like Jesus and reflecting that love to other people. So I'm excited what he's got in store for this series. It's a, we've got a, seven churches, seven letters, six weeks. So if you do the math, someone's going to be doubling up, but uh, it's going to be good. Uh, and th- the picture that, these, that comes emerges from these letters of these churches is fascinating to me because what you're going to find is it's going to feel very familiar. When you're reading about these churches, it doesn't feel like letters written to some very alien culture. It feels like something written to something very familiar. Some of these churches, Jesus, uh, some of these churches love Jesus. Some of them don't. Uh, Some of them are working really hard. Some of them are lazy. Some of them are just phoning it in. (laughs) Some of these churches uh, are struggling and they need encouragement. Some of these churches are sinning, and they need rebuke, and some are okay, some just reek. And uh, it turns out, it turns out an amazing thing, the early church is a lot like the church today. It's this messy combination of the faithful and the faithless uh, coming together, and no church is perfect. Amen? Let me say that again. No church is perfect. 2,000 years ago, or today, no church is perfect. That is why we're the disciples, and he's the master. Jesus is perfect. You and I are a work in progress. Amen? So no church is perfect, and if you're looking for the perfect church, you won't find it. You won't, you won't find it. If it was perfect, when you get there, it won't be perfect anymore. Um, but, but that's what church is about. That's okay. It's what it's about. The local church, what we have going on here, is God's people who have gathered together To worship him, to walk with him, be led by him, be instructed by him, and transformed by him. That's the goal. Transformed by him. It's not about programs. It's not about cool music. Uh, It's not about matching t-shirts. That's not what church is about. It's not what makes a good church. It's about bringing ourselves under submission to Christ and allowing him to change us and mold us and encourage us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray before we get started here. Father God, I ask you to use this, these letters that you wrote to these churches to capture us, convict us, Lord. Illuminate us. Illuminate for us what, what, what fresh things you want to teach us. We ask your spirit to have freedom in these weeks, to roam around, to show Show us new things, scary things, shine that big light of yours, that big light of truth into our hearts to search and point things out, to inspire us, and to give us hope in the name of the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, amen, amen, amen. Okay, a couple of quick thoughts here kind of in the introduction as we go along. We're teaching out of the book of Revelation. Revelation. Been a while since we went here. Quick thoughts about the big book of Revelation. Revelation is an example of uh, what's called the apocalyptic genre of writing. That was uh, it was popular in first century Jewish writers. Um, the very nature of Revelation. It's very expansive stuff. Very, a lot of metaphors, images. Much of it is rooted in the social political you know, uh, cultural world, the first century world that they lived in. Uh, some of it prophesies to their future. Some of it prophesies to our future. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of debates that go along about with what all the different symbols mean and stuff like that. We're not going to get into too many of those, those kind of debates. But the, what, safe to say, Revelation requires a lot of interpretation. A lot of interpretation. And I might add, Revelation requires a lot of Humility. Okay, uh, as we try to unpack the mysteries that God has planted in the ground for us in this book. So that's what we're going to attempt to do. Today, we are diving into the first letter of these churches. It's in Revelation chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can. Um, And the first letter written to the first church is the church of Ephesus. Ephesus. Yes, this is the same Ephesus as we read about in the book of Ephesians. That's the letter to the Ephesians. That letter was written probably 30 years or so before Revelation come along, and we're going to see some fascinating things that have happened to this church. Um, let's look at a map really quickly just to kind of help us visualize what's happening. Revelation uh, is written by John, and John says that he is on the Isle of Patmos, down here at the bottom left. He's on an island. Uh, it seems that this is like a uh, kind of like a, a prison colony. It's sort of a, a, it's a punishment to be here. Uh, he's been there for preaching the word, and while he's there, he's, the Revel, book of Revelation uh, is a series of visions that are given to him, or uh, he has taken up into this place. Some really amazing things happen, and he's, he's shown some things uh, of, of the future, and part of that is this letter that Jesus tells him, write this letter to these seven churches. Now, you can see the churches up there. Uh, it's on Asia Minor there, modern-day Turkey. So you can go to those places today. There's a lot of ruins there you can check out. Uh, The first one we're going to be looking at today is Ephesus. And they kind of go in the order of uh, where you could imagine a messenger would take them. We're going to go Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philippian, Laodicea. And so that's kind of the order that they're up there. Um, Let's talk about Ephesus for a second. Ephesus uh, is at the, the very center of... Uh, a, the Asian and Roman world. Uh, at this time, Alexander the Great had come through and conquered this whole area a hundred or two years before this time, transformed the culture. Ephesus had become a huge trading center, very important city. Um, <clears throat> it was one of these cities that, kind of, one of the personalities of this city was known for achievement. One of their highest ideals of this region was the ideal of human glory and achievement. Human, they glorified the human body, they glorified human achievement, um, and being excellent, being, you know, over the top. They worshiped the body, they worshiped the mind. The Greek culture that was here was consumed by questions like, how accomplished are you? How smart are you? Uh, how beautiful are you? How, how well have you perfectly sculpted your body? How successful are you? Unfortunately, we can't relate to any of these questions in our culture today, right? This is completely foreign to us. Uh, but this was kind of the ideals. These are the questions that were important to the Ephesians. Now, Ephesus had a, not one but two temples built uh, to the emperor. It just left me. I had it right there, Augustus. Yeah, so two temples built, right? So it wanted to be over the top. They wanted to be excellent, and they were these grand, glorious things. But what Ephesus was really known for, what it was also the center of, was the center of the Artemis cult. The cult of Artemis, the uh, goddess of fertility. It was the center of the worship of Artemis. She, uh, there was a huge temple there. That's a, a painting of what uh, they believe it, it looked like. Um, The temple to Artemis. She was also known as, she was the goddess of fertility, but also known as the queen of heaven, the mother goddess. So there's also a lot of sexuality and things like that involved in her worship. Uh, the worship at the temple got kind of crazy. It was really associated with a lot of sensual things. It involved a lot of erotic rituals. Um, they had, like, wild orgies, temple prostitutes, that kind of stuff. People uh, would, like, maim themselves just going into frenzies. Crazy wild stuff. So this is Ephesus, right? This, this city that is both, like, right, very, like, let's be excellent about everything and be over the top. We want be, to be—those cities that we looked at, those uh, seven cities there, they were always, always in kind of competition for who could be the favorite of Rome, and Ephesus was always the leader. Ephesus was kind of the favorite— um, because that was their, their you know, mantra, to be excellent and to achieve. And at the same time, in their worship, and their passions and sexuality, it was, little, it was a little crazy, a little out there. It's kind of, it reminds me of Las Vegas. Or Ephesus, when I'm more I read about it, it's just like, okay, this is Vegas. Uh, because they're, you know, uh, on the one hand, they built a city out of the desert. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. And, uh, and then on the other hand, it's like Sin City 24-7. So that's kind of Ephesus. This is the city... Now, this is important. This is the city out of which the church of Ephesus grew that it exists in. And it gives us a clue as to why the church is the way it is. Think about it. Churches respond very often to the culture that they live in. A a church very often reflects the culture that they live in. They embrace the culture, you know. If you're a church that is in some high-powered financial urban center or something like that, that church very likely is going to kind of reflect that sort of go-get-it-done, overachiever type of kind of personality. The Generations Church very much reflects the personality and, you know, kind of the way we are here at Spring, Woodlands, Conroe, you know, this area. That's that's kind of what uh, our church reflects. At the same time, what you have often find is churches reacting against the negative aspects of their culture in order to differentiate themselves. And so while they reflect some aspects of their culture, they will react by, in an extreme way to the negative aspects of their culture um, to differentiate themselves. So here's what we're going to find. We're going to find both of these. These qualities to be true about the church of Ephesus. Okay, let's read through what God has to say to these churches. This is just, it's the the first seven verses, what we're going to cover today in the book of Revelation chapter two. Verse one, here he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. Now this word angel here right off the bat, Scholars are a little bit uh, all over the place what this actually is. In Hebrew thought, they kind of saw, sometimes there was like a guardian angel that was over different cities. They thought of a guardian angel in charge. Uh, So it could be that this is like sort of a guardian angel over the church of Ephesus. What a lot of scholars believe, and I kind of go along with this myself a little bit, is that this might be referring to a pastor or an overseer or apostle or something that's over this these churches, because the city of Ephesus would have had multiple uh, little churches within it, so um, that that could be what this is about. Honestly, it doesn't really matter. Uh, we can agree to disagree, and it doesn't affect anything. Okay, so let's keep going. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, whoever you are, angel, these are the words of him. Who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands? OK, right off the bat. Here we go. If you've never read Revelation Four before, this is a perfect example of, of the genre of writing that you're about to wade into. It's highly symbolic. a lot of mysterious imagery going around here. Um, we've got the, 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 seven stars, which were told earlier, uh, are the seven angels over these churches. Uh, it's, we're told about that in, in chapter one, uh, lampstands. Now, this is interesting. Lampstands for, for Jewish writers. They, you know, words are meticulously chosen to represent something. They're chosen not only to tell you the thing that they're telling you, but also to evoke something from the past to make you go, Oh, I see what you did there. Jewish writers are always doing this, right? And so a first century reader would see this and go, oh, okay, Uh, oh, okay, I'm I'm getting something there. Uh, uh, For instance, the creation account in Genesis begins with the introduction of light, God's announcement of light, okay? But also, here's a key passage in Isaiah in chapter 49, where he says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. A light to the Gentiles. So light, lanterns, lampstands, when you see this kind of stuff, most often it speaks to God's desire that the whole world would know of God's love and his salvation. The light that, that we are to represent. So so you have Jesus walking through these lampstands, and that's an interesting thing too. He walks through these among these lampstands, which represent the churches, we're told in chapter one, who are to be his light shining to the world. Over in the book of Matthew, Jesus himself says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. So his audience, who knew the prophets well, would have said, light. Ah, well, that goes all the way back to Isaiah. We know what Jesus is talking about. Sure, yeah. Jesus is essentially calling us back to our calling, our mission, our purpose, to be something to the world. We're here to show the world this God's redeeming love and his grace to extend God's salvation to everybody, right? Let's keep reading. Verse 2, Revelation 2.2. 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Now, this is important. This is three, he's pointing out three things. This is three important actions that we see. Deeds, these are good deeds, the good things you go do for, for, for people and things like that. The hard work, you're getting in there, you're doing the, you know, the muddy work, you're getting everything done. And your perseverance, that's your commitment, that work of commitment. It's really three different kinds of work, right? Good work, hard work, and persevering work. So far, so Good. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. Okay, so these guys have become really good at hunting out the fakers. They can find them, the charlatans, they can spot them a mile away now. And what's interesting is uh, years earlier in the book of Ephesians, we find that Paul uh, is very concerned about this. And he, this is a real danger to this church is false prophets, false apostles. Now we find that these guys apparently are on the ball. They've got this, this down. Those who are claiming to represent the church and the church leaders, the church of, in Ephesus has tested them and found them false. And this is a good thing. See, we're still in the good part of the letter. So we still feel good about this. Over in 1 John 4, we're told, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So here's something that we should all be doing. We should all be testing the spirits, right? Don't just swallow everything you hear, I tell you. Don't don't just swallow everything I tell you, right? Including what I preach. Go dive into the scriptures. Test it out for yourself. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's get back to our letter. In verse 3, he says, You have persevered and endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. So Jesus says, you have persevered. That's the second time he's mentioned this already. So these guys are perseverers, okay? Second time. He says, you've endured hardship. That's good, right? Man, these guys, I'd be like, this sounds like the dream team. Like, send me to this church. That sounds amazing, right? This is good. This is your good in in the trenches, fundamentalist, good, sound, doctrine, hard-working church. They got all their ducks in a row, well-organized. They have made sure everything is correct, and they're good. They're doing doing the good work. But it doesn't end there. Verse 4, but then he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Oh, that had to be a dreadful thing to hear sitting in that church that day when those scrolls being read out. Okay, Church of Ephesians, here's what John wrote to us. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh, maybe it won't be so bad when he says, I have this against you. You're thinking maybe, hopefully it'll just be, you know, here's the thing, your music's a little too loud, right? <laughs> that, that billboard by the road, it's getting pretty faded. We need to change that out, right? You're, you're hoping, oh, it's not. hopefully it won't be that bad. Oh, man. He strikes at the thing that is pretty much the most important thing. In fact, it's kind of the only thing, love. You have lost your first love. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Ouch. And then he really twists the knife. Consider how far you have fallen. Because you're thinking, well, maybe we just lost a little bit of love. No, consider how far you have fallen. Repent. And notice this. Do the things you did at first. So this is something they should know better. He says, you guys had this. Y'all had the love. You've lost it. Now, here's what's fascinating. 30 years earlier... The Apostle Paul, when he writes his letter to the, this church, the Ephesians, he's writing a bunch of interesting things to them. It's going to be really good. This is one of our courses going to be in Generations University, right? You can go through the Book of Ephesians. And during this letter, you know what he does? He compliments their enduring love. Paul compliments their this persevering, undying love. He calls it of them. So at that time, they were hot. Ephesians had it going on. Right? And now Jesus says, You've lost it. You've lost it. Now, the question is, what is he talking about? What's really fascinating about this church is that we get to see different stages of its growth. If we turn over, turn over, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we not only get to see uh, it in its early stages of the church like in Ephesians, but we get to see the birth of the church of the Ephesians. This is really cool. The same church, uh, Acts chapter 19. So this, this passage talks about one of the first encounters people in Ephesus had with the gospel. Notice chapter 19, we're going to look at verse 11. It says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them, right? This is, this is like a Todd White seminar going on here. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of that Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Skeva, that's fun to say, seven sons of Sheba, a Jewish chief priest were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, That's never a good sign when that happens. Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? (laughs) That just makes me laugh for some reason. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Favorite exorcist story ever. (laughs) When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, that word means reverence, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done, and a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Okay, so get this picture. The church starts in Ephesus, this city that's known for the you know cult of Artemis and all this kind of thing. It's crazy erotic pagan worship. How does the church start here? Is this a carefully planned seven-step strategy of church planting that's happened here? Have they gone out with freshly, nicely printed pamphlets and passed them out? and organized a little coffee for people to come visit, and a new member's class. Is that what's happening here? Stylishly argued the case for a more civilized religion for them to come up here. And people said, oh, that sounds wonderful. Yes, I'd like to join. Where do I sign? Is that the beginning of the church of Ephesus? No! No! Not at all. What happens in this story? This is like chaos, right? I mean, there's like people coming out of the woodwork, people are getting saved, people people who are doing it just all kind, of, and then people are all trying to do the same thing. Hey, I want to cast out devils too, right? And, and getting torn up. I mean, all the, if you came upon a huge bonfire on the side of I-45 as you're driving by, and you walk by, and people are out there like dancing and throwing Ouija boards in the fire, and you're like, what the? And they go, well, we've started a church. <laughs> She'd be like, okie dokie, Right? this is going to be an interesting place to go. What is this? This is spontaneous, right? This is chaotic. This is Holy Spirit driven. This is, this is something only that only God could do. It's lives being changed. It's, it's we can't keep up with this thing. It's out of our control, but man, it's exciting, right? That's what's going on here, right? It's happening faster than you can sort of organize around it, right? They haven't even got their 501c3 in place with the IRS, and people are getting saved, right? And they don't know what to do. It's All these people are coming forward and confessing. and Now we turn back over to Revelation. Let's try to unlock what this first love might be referring to. Acts 19 takes place in the first century, probably around the 50s or 60s, okay? Think Kennedy years, okay? Revelation two comes at us, first century, roughly around the eighties or nineties. So think Reagan, you know Reagan Clinton era. What has happened? We're a generation later. It's a generation later. This chaotic love peace, hippie filled thing that people getting saved all over the place, you know, Ouija board burning crazy people, this sort of I can't explain it, but it's real and it's beautiful and it's amazing. Have you heard what's happening to you hear his story and his story? This whole thing in Ephesus started to become something, it started to get organized, started to get organized a little bit, started to become respectful, right, and what do you get? You start to have people who who say well, You know what? I, I kind of, I I would like a little bit of this power. I want a position in this movement. I, I'm actually an apostle too, and so I, you know, I probably I need an important title and a corner office. That's what's happening. Think of any great idea that's birthed. You guys who started your own businesses, you probably can relate to this, right? Or think about the origin story of like Microsoft or Apple or those kind of things. You know, when the business starts in somebody's garage right? Between like friends from college and they don't have any money, but they're starting it. they're passionate and they're pitching in, they're all working in one room. They've got like, they're all sharing one desktop, two phones and a fax machine, you know, and, and there's no money, but they're in it to win it. And they're passionate because they believe in it and it's beautiful. And then the business starts to get going, starts to make some money. And what happens? Someone goes, you know what? I've actually been doing more work than the other people. I'm doing a little more work than them. And you know, now that we're gonna be renting office space, I'm gonna need a window and a private bathroom, right? How many know what I'm talking about? What happens the year after your your favorite pro team wins the championship? What happens the second year? All the players who were part of this ragtag scrappy group that was like us against them and we're shouting down the naysayers. What happens the second year? You get people going, actually, I'm the star of the team, and I'm going to need to get paid. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Why does your favorite band's second album never quite measure up to the first album? (laughs) Because they had a whole lifetime of making that first one, right? Pouring their souls into it. It was all about the music, man. That's all that mattered. Right? And then by the time you get to the second one, they should be in the Studio writing and pouring their souls into that, but they're picking out what color Bentley they want. (laughs) What's going on here? This story starts in the 50s with sharing the good, ecstatic, exuberant news of the gospel. Churches are no different than businesses or bands or... Sports teams here, you you start with something exuberant, but by the 90s, you get over here and and their energy, has their energy been spent on spreading this love to more people outside the church? Or has their energy now been spent on internal issues, keeping things kosher, keeping things correct, keeping the ducks in a row, weeding out the fakers? See, they're great at spotting folks who aren't saying the right things. Jesus even commends them for it. They're great at that. They're great at working hard, 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 work, work, work. They're great at that. And that's not, all, that's not all bad. Jesus says you guys have been working hard. That's good. You've been trying to sort it all out. You're weeding out who's in it for the wrong reasons. You're really good at making sure everything is correct. Got your ducks in a row. But somewhere along the way, in your efforts to work, 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 you've lost your first love. Man, oh man, oh man. Ephesus has become a church full of Martha's and heresy hunters. (laughs) You know what I mean? Martha. Jesus goes and visits his two friends, Martha and Mary. And the Son of God is coming over to the house. What would you do? Well we all know Martha. Some of us can relate to her. She says, Jesus is coming. Well, I gotta clean the place up. I gotta get things clean. I gotta put a roast in the oven, right? I gotta get out the good china. The silverware's not washed. We gotta straighten things up. Gotta vacuum the floors. What does Mary do? You know the story. She falls at his feet, just gazing up into his eyes in love, hanging on every word that he says. There's Martha's and there's Mary's and there's heresy hunters, right? We know these guys. How many Christians have you have you met that are they're theologically orthodox, they're correct, they could answer all your Bible trivia questions all day long, right? They could destroy your bad logic with their knowledge of scripture. Any heretic shows up, no problem. Take care of him, we can proof text him till his brain explodes and he runs home to mama. Right? Boom. And yet what they really are, are jerks. They're unkind. They're unloving. And having a conversation with them is like being tapped on the forehead with a roofing hammer. (laughs) Why? Because Jesus says that, that good theology begins and ends with this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. See, if you, if you consider yourself a good Bible scholar and yet you're a creep, you're actually a bad disciple. You might be a great scholar, but you're a bad disciple. You may be able to argue. You can argue the doctrine of vicarious substitutionary atonement in the original Greek, right? But what you need to do is like bake a plate of cookies, put down the concordance and hug somebody, right? Right? That's what some people need to do. <laughs> Jesus tells Ephesus, you guys started because you understood that the world needs to hear this good news. You were bold, you were joyous and fresh and creative in the ways you were sharing the gospel. It was beautiful. And, and Paul comes along and makes sure their, their doctrine is right. He helps them make sure their doctrine is right. They're able to weed out the false apostles. All that's good. Somewhere along the way, though, he says you lost that passion and calling. You lost that passion. In your desire to be right, you forgot that you're supposed to be light, right? That was a lot of rhyming right there. Jesus reminds us that we are light. We're light. What is light? Light. Remember what light reminds us of. What are lampstands? What is light? That it's a reminder that we are not just here for ourselves. It's not just about forming a really well-run organization. That's good. There's nothing wrong with well-run organizations. It's not just about uh, being able to say, hey, look, we're doctrinally correct. I mean, that's good. It's good to be doctrinally correct. That's lovely. But you aren't here for you. Generations Church is not here for me. It is is here so that God's love can flow through us to the world. This church in Ephesus has lost that. And he tells them them then what to do about it. So we get to verse 5. And it says... Go ahead and go to verse 5. Verse 5 says, repent and do the things you did at first. Repent. Repent. And do the things you did at first. Repent. Turn to the true path. Repent means turn. Return to the true path. And then he warns them, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus reminds these folks, if you do not get it together, if you do not remember why you are here, that you are here to show the world the gospel in the flesh if you forget that, if you don't turn from this death spiral you're in, if, you're getting too, if you keep being too wrapped up in your own self-preservation, if you keep operating from a place of fear of the outsider, if your default is always to just circle the wagons and defend your ground to the point where you forget why you're here, I will come and remove your lampstand. Jesus says this. Notice, Jesus does not express loyalty in the missional sense to those who are not true to the mission. Now, understand he will never leave or forsake you. He will never leave or forsake you or you or you or you or me. But that doesn't mean he will just keep propping up an organization that has come to reject their purpose, right? He will not keep propping that organization up. Let that sink in. Happy New Year. (laughs) Let's keep reading. Verse 6. He says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. (laughs) And nobody knows what this means. (laughs) It's true. Scholars have been debating for for thousands of years now who were the Nicolaitans, and uh, we're not really sure. It's some side cult or something that was in the area. And he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus uses this phrase again and again. Now, he used it even in his parables. Back during his earthly ministry, he would use this phrase. And he uses it here in each letter to the seven churches. It means if you understand what I'm saying, then listen and do it. Listen and do it. So, where do we go from here? Where do we go in 2018? couple of thoughts. Number one, sometimes Jesus apparently decides these people who claim to be my people have thoroughly lost the plot. They have failed to be my people in the world. And so I have to remove the lampstand. I have to put that light out Because it actually does more damage for the world to keep witnessing this organization that represents me badly than for the organization to just fade away. What does this look like? Have you ever observed a group of Christians who, and it seems like they spend an extraordinary amount of energy on things that don't seem to have anything to do with spreading Jesus' love around the world. Perhaps they haven't been true to their calling. Perhaps their lampstand has been removed, and maybe the spirit is a bit like Elvis. It has left the building. Second thought. Let's see here second thought. Go ahead. It was there. There we are. <laughs> for many people, the, the moment you start talking about witnessing, when we talk about witnessing, sharing God's love with the world, showing the world, the gospel, for many folks, there is instantly a cold sweat that breaks out on you. Uh, there is this dread of, oh, oh no, I, I can't do that. I don't like arguments. There's, for some folks, there's this feeling of, you mean i got to prove that the Bible is real? i got to go prove to people that God is real and true? And i got to convince my neighbors that Jesus is the only way? I, I, do, I mean, i got to go be one of those people that pester them until they get a restraining order? i got to be those people? Now, don't get me wrong. Witnessing through conversation should be a part of our life. And it should develop into a natural part of our life. To in in the circles that we're around, to the people that we come across. But I want to read a couple of passages from Jesus and talk about how he talks about showing the world God's love. He says this in Matthew. He said, You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This new year, maybe the first step for you and me is asking. Do you have an enemy? Somebody that you're in conflict with. Somebody who maybe because of something that's happened between y'all, some history that happened, or maybe it's just a position that you have both taken on some subject. But because of that, they are the other. They are the them. And one of the most fundamental ways, church, that we can... Testify to God's love is just by moving toward our enemies. In chapter six, he says, "If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins." So maybe one of the uh, the most practical ways we witness to God's love in the world through Christ is simply to move toward those who are enemies in our life. In some cases, it means we stop talking evil about them. Or we stop constantly making our case of how awful they are to everyone who, anyone who will listen, even if those people can't help us. Which, by the way, is called Gossip. In some cases, it means we take off the bumper stickers, who's, you know, the ones I'm talking about, the ones, their only purpose is to stick it to those people who disagree with us when they're driving by. Sometimes loving your enemies means setting aside all the comfortable little categories that we've placed people in. Sometimes it's questioning whether they really are your enemy at all. Maybe they're just people who are in possession of a different set of facts, a different set of experiences than you. Maybe we need to start rejecting caricatures of people and start rediscovering their humanity. Is there anyone who has wronged you? And it is time to forgive them so that you can get back on track With the adventure that God has planned for you in 2018. Forgiving. Forgiving. It doesn't mean we condone what they did. It doesn't mean we turn our back on injustice and consequences. It simply means that in our heart, we set them free. You want to be free? Do you want to be free? Is there any area of our spiritual lives but we've gotten so good at making our arguments and doing lots and lots of work grinding it out maybe you're great at that you're working hard you're grinding it out but we have squeezed out the very reason that we're called to be a disciple which is to become more and more like Jesus and reflect that love to other people that's why we're here to become more and more like Jesus And start reflecting that love to other people. Jesus says to us, O church, Generations Church, remember, repent, and return to your first love. Let's pray as our prayer partners come forward. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. I thank you, Lord God, for what you're doing in us. I thank you, Lord God, for your grace and your mercy and your love that's new every morning. I thank you, Lord God, that you never give up on us. You're always with us. You're always walking with us. Father God, we don't want to become some organization that has our light put out, Father God. We want to be used by you in the future. We want to be in on everything you have planned for this community and what you're doing around the world, Lord God. We thank you, Father, that you have given us clear direction right here in your holy scriptures. We thank you, Father. Give us the courage to follow you no matter what. Give us the courage to allow you to mold us and shine that light inside us and allow ourselves to be changed. Fix us, Father God. And we receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.